Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Eric Cattell. <laughs> and we are track walking. Tonight, like he introduced himself, we have Eric Till joining us. Um, Honda fanboy. Um, tucked wheels enthusiast. Oh, well, that's coming soon. Um, lives in his garage practically, or at least that's what Instagram makes it seem like. It definitely does. I try not to, though, but sometimes I, I definitely do live in the garage. Well, that, that was... That was one interesting thing because, again, like social media can be exactly, can show exactly what we want it to show of us. And it shows you in your garage quite a bit. But, you know, that's something I've kind of realized lately is if someone is on my Instagram a lot, it looks like I have no life. Yeah. I mean, that's accurate some of the times, but I don't really post personal stuff on social media much. Except like Emily kind of gets mad. I'm, Emily's my girlfriend. She gets mad that I don't really post her on Instagram. I'm like, well, why would I? My <laughs> yeah. Instagram's really just for my car. Em- Maybe me occasionally. I don't really like sharing personal stuff that much. Em- Emily doesn't bring the sponsors in. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I try not to use Emily in those kind of <laughs> methods to get sponsorships. So that's, not not really. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I've in some of your stories, like she's asleep on the couch with your dog on (laughs) at her feet. And it's just like, all right, well, but I remember you saying at some point too, that's like, you don't like how much time you spend in the garage. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I try to maintain a balance. Well, I try to more now, I guess maybe a year or two ago, sometimes I would spend too much time in the garage and, it would strain relationships. I mean, sometimes Emily doesn't like me being in there. And a lot of times I don't like being in there that long either, you know, cause you miss out on a lot of opportunities. You kind of get to the point where you kind of make decisions based on the car, you know, like you have friends hanging out, you know, going out or whatever. And you're like, well, you know, I really got to get this done on the car and you choose to stay indoors and work in the garage. And too much of that is, is definitely not good for the soul. So trying to limit that and manage my time and mainly be efficient in the garage is kind of my goals now. Of what does that efficiency look like to you? Is that just like working fast or having a game plan when you go in or? Yeah, definitely having a game plan. Um, a lot of the times I found myself doing jobs that didn't really need to be done. Like, mm. you know, I would, I would work on intake ducting or radiator ducting and it wouldn't really, I wouldn't like it because it wasn't hundred percent perfect. So I would redo a lot of it and stuff like that would just take hours where the previous design was already pretty damn good. There was no reason for me to redo it. So it's, it's stuff like that where like, I kind of focus on jobs that really need to be done. And I kind of have, I always have a list of what's, you know, the higher priority item to do. So when I get into the garage, I, I have a, basically a pretty good idea of what needs to be done, how long it's going to take me. And I try to, you know, do jobs when, you know, there's really not much stuff going on. So like, luckily Emily kind of works pretty late now, so I can kind of get into the garage an hour or two after work. And then once she comes home, like I'm basically done and I can kind of spend time with her or friends and family and stuff like that. True. Yeah. Race, race cars seem to be one of those things in life that is an absolute black hole. It will yes. take everything you give it and ask for more, please. Yeah, I've always been pretty good. Um, like when I have a deadline to hit, like I always make it happen. It's one of the things I kind of pride myself on is I always make it to events. I always have a car that's running. 
you know, if I have, you know, a show to go to with like sponsors, I make sure the car looks the part. So I'm always kind of preparing weeks in advance to hit these targets and milestones. And unfortunately, sometimes you kind of have to drop everything. And like a week or two before an event, you have to go ham. You have to spend 30 hours in the garage on the weekend. Um, But I got to the point last year where my car was basically at a point where all I really needed to do was maintain it. I didn't really need to modify it much. So managing my time was a lot easier because between events, you know, after an event, check everything. Uh, make sure nothing's broken. And if something is kind of looking like it's fatigued, I order it ahead of time. So when the part comes in, I have plenty of time to replace it or, or fix stuff and do alignments. So I'm not kind of rushing in those few final weeks. But generally speaking, the weekend before an event, I'm usually booked in the garage for the weekend. You can't really, there's always stuff you have to do right before an event. It always kind of comes down to the weekend prior. Yeah. Yeah. At best, sometimes, uh, with a lot of GLTC and uh, Time Attack drivers, I know it. It's they're working on it the night before they're supposed to leave yeah. or some crap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a that's like a not a lot of the. I guess it's one of the harder things about club racing or racing in general that not a lot of people understand is how many hours it requires in the garage. And yeah, just something I'm trying to manage this year, which is kind of ironic because this year, <laughs> I guess we'll get into it later, but. Yeah. I'm building a new chassis and I'm trying to document it on YouTube and the YouTube portion of it is making everything take three to four times as long. So it's kind of hypocritical for me saying I'm trying to spend less time in the garage, but now I spend the same amount of time in the garage and I can do the footage like efficiently, but it's the editing stuff that takes, you know, twice as long as actual work. And I don't know, it's (laughs) trying to manage it, trying to be more efficient at the YouTube editing, but it's just, I'm trying to do other things, but that those things also take time. So no matter what you're, you're taking time from something. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I was, um, was a videographer major in undergrad and the joke that really wasn't a joke is that if you spend one hour per minute of footage editing, you're going quickly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brutal, especially like, I don't have any experience. I'm using a pretty complex software. I think it's DaVinci Resolve okay. and I'm trying to make it entertaining. Cause like in my free time, I like watching YouTube videos of other people building stuff. Cause it's easy. You know, I get, get to sit on my couch and enjoy other people building stuff. <laughs> so I kind of have an idea of how I want to like shoot it and what I, what kind of shots I want and how I want to edit it, but actually doing the editing part and, and making it smooth and entertaining. It has been difficult, but I think I'm getting there. I'm learning a few things and hopefully people will start to enjoy the videos. Yeah. Why, why YouTube? Why, why choose? Because I, I know you've posted like race footage, um, some recap stuff on YouTube before, but with this, like why, I guess why choose to spend that effort and that time learning basically a new skill and taking time away from a new chassis build to do YouTube stuff. So I, th- I think what I, what my goal is, I mean, for those who are unaware, I ended up crashing my EG hatch at the last event of grid life. It's a pretty sad story <laughs> and I'm building a new chassis. It's a four door EG sedan. So very similar, but extremely different. And I'm trying to replicate like a JG JTCC style build. So super low tubs in all four corners, big wheel and tires. But this is a build that I've always wanted to do for quite a bit. 
Um, I've been thinking about doing this build for a while and I've never had a reason to because I've had the hatch and the hatch has been basically perfect for what I needed it to do. And now I finally get the chance to build that due to unfortunate circumstances, but I really want to take my time on the build. So I'm kind of delaying, I'm spreading the build across a wider period of time. And I figured, you know, I don't want to rush the actual build process because it's, it's quite stressful trying to hit a target. You know, like a lot of people have been telling me, Hey, you got to finish this build and get out there next year for Coda, which is in like two months. There's no freaking way I'm going <laughs> to stress myself out Jesus. to hit that kind of target. So what I want to do instead is kind of take my time on the build, enjoy it. And at the same time, do the videos of it because what I like doing with my social media is I like showing people how to do stuff. And it's been quite successful on Instagram is there hasn't really been a platform for road racers kind of showing how they build a car and, and sharing all the secrets. So that's what I love doing on Instagram. And people have been bugging me for years to do YouTube and Hey, like the stuff that you do would be perfect for YouTube. And I finally kind of decided, Hey, I think now's a good time to do it. Spend a lot of time on this build, maybe a year, year and a half, maybe have the car ready for 2023. And in that time, I can kind of maintain the same amount of time I spend in the garage and then do a little bit of the YouTube as well and kind of still be in that happy medium with time spent on the project. But like I said, I like learning new skills. I think YouTube is an easier platform to show people how to do things because once you post stuff on Instagram, like, hey, I'm doing a splitter build, it kind of gets buried and then it gets lost and it's never really found again until unless someone buries through your profile. But on YouTube you can do a similar DIY project posted on YouTube and it's, it's always there and it's easier for people to find. It's sure. easier for people to follow along. So that's kind of my goal is to get more into the details on the new build. I should have a lot of content because I'm essentially building this car from scratch. Yeah. Take these videos, upload them, put them on YouTube. And hopefully, you know, there's someone out there that will enjoy them because if I was building a similar car, I would love to, follow somebody who's building something like that, that I can just watch his videos, get an idea of how to do it and then be more confident. So that's essentially the main goal of why I wanted to do the YouTube is to teach people how to do what I do. Yeah. The YouTube, a good YouTube build will actually hopefully crossing my fingers, take the place of the old build threads and forums in the fact that it sort of becomes like a perpetual thing. Um, yeah. As long as you don't delete them in five years, if I want to go find your build, I can go find it. And that's the thing that gets missing from Instagram and all like the really quick social media stuff Yep, is, is we miss that, that perpetual length of time that you had those old build threads for, like you could go back at, and look at, you know, 10 years ago, what somebody was doing on their car. Cause it was at the beginning of the build thread. Yeah. And like, I really miss that aspect of car culture. Oh, that's how I started. Basically when I first got into the Honda game, it was all, it was all forums when I was in college and, I used to live, I, I never really posted, I was a lurker, but I used to spend so much time on forums and forums were so helpful because all that information is there. And now it's without the forums, like information is lost. Like Facebook is terrible for it. Instagram is okay, but it's not great. But forums is really where it's at. And it's kind of a real shame that it, it disappeared. So hopefully the YouTube stuff can kind of fill that void a little bit. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I do remember... You know, we were talking about editing and how much time that takes. I do remember sitting down on several different forums and catalog different cars and stuff that I did to them. I can't even say build, but, you know, maybe the PT Cruiser would probably be the closest <laughs> thing to a build I ever did on Thread. Um, 
And yeah, the amount of time I spent like crafting a post, uh, it wasn't a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, it was difficult. Like photo bucket, you got to size oh, the picture God. right, write your essays. It about, wasn't easy either. I forgot about all the like photo hosting BS you had to sift. Oh through. yeah. Well, then photo bucket charged like a thousand dollars or something to share image. I don't know. Photo bucket became irrelevant. But yeah, it's a real shame because. When I was lurking the forums, like I was a pro college kid and I was autocrossing and I didn't really have anything to build. I was basically just browsing through the forums, like looking at like cool tricks and cheap mods that you can do and kind of dreaming like, oh, like this guy's build is awesome. I wish I could replicate something like that. And now that's all lost. Like I, I feel like I, I build some cool stuff and I would love to kind of share it on a forum, but there's really not a lot of activity on those anymore. So yeah. My main platform is is mainly Instagram right now and just trying to build a YouTube. So. so in college, why were you interested in Hondas? I mean you're you're kind of known for your your fandom for Acura, all things Acura and Honda. Did yeah, that, for sure. Did that um, like start well, at the beginning. It kind of all started when I was a kid, because we had good family friends. Um Probably, I don't know if they'll listen to it, but Rudy and my, my good friend, Ronnie Vidoc and um, Jerry Vidoc, um, basically these were all family friends of ours and they used to actually race Hondas. They used to race them in Speed Vision, Speed Vision uh, touring cars. Oh, yeah. So one, one of them had 5th Gen Prelude, the other one had an Integra Type R. So I was kind of surrounded by the racing environment from a really young age and they had Hondas and honestly... They were, they were so cool. Like as a kid, like you go to their garage and you see these race cars and you also watch Fast and Furious. And there's a lot of Hondas in there. So kind of instantly from that young age, I was addicted to Hondas. I actually ended up buying my Integra Type R from one of them, which I still have today. Yeah. And yeah, just from that early age, I was into Hondas. Um, and then in college, I ended up buying an Integra GSR as my first car. Um, just started tinkering with it. Had a lot of good college friends that also were into cars and Hondas. And I felt like the Honda community back then, especially with the forums, like there was so much knowledge that you can gain from these forums and other people. Yeah. So it was easy as someone kind of getting into the, you know, the car world to learn how to build them and modify them and work on them and fix them. And I learned really quickly in college how to do all that stuff as well as autocrossing. And then that kind of continued to grow. And instead of kind of growing up and going to a different chassis, I was kind of just always fix into the Hondas because the Hondas are always kind of like underdogs in my opinion. You know, everyone thinks they're kind of, you know, they're shit boxes <laughs> most of the time, yeah. but I always love proving people what like a solid setup front wheel drive chassis can do. And once I got the EG out of college, once I started getting a full-time job, I started to do road courses, started racing that, got my license with SCCA, race SCCA with it. And I just continue to evolve that car. And like, it seems like that car had no limit to potential. Like it constantly kept getting better and better and better. And it got to the point where I'm racing a 1992 Civic that's meant to go to the grocery store. And I'm racing against Caymans and Corvettes and BMWs and Kamiatas. And it's holding its own out there with a lot of those guys. And it's just cool to kind of have such an old Honda that was never designed to race, but the engineers did it so well that it can have all this potential. It's, I don't know. It's always inspiring. And I even work at Honda. That's how kind of crazy I'm into it. And 
you know, I've done all the Honda things, you know, I've, I've done the forums. I went to the car shows, went to the car meets locally, went to Honda day, you know, as a kid, you know, I did a lot of stupid stuff with Hondas and kind of ended up in the road racing world where I think these Hondas have so much potential. So I've kind of been around all of it. So who hasn't done dumb things with Hondas? Yeah. Um, things I'm not proud of, yeah. but um, <laughs> never really crashed them. Well, I mean, unless the recent one yeah, I did, yeah, too <laughs> but never did dumb stuff on the street that involved crashing. Okay. Well, that's I highly don't recommend. That's good. Um, and your, your hatch was, you know, I can't even say like jokingly, like, yes, it was a race car. There's also a show car and like the amount of detail that went into that car and time to keep it clean and keep it looking good was pretty infuriating. Um, and I, I guess the, the question for me is, or at least my thought would be that if you have a car that has to look that good and be kind of that clean, not just like dirt wise, but also like wiring and engineering wise. It seems that the amount of thought, preparation, and attention to detail that goes into a show car actually lends itself quite well to being a good race car because you have to plan things out and prepare well. You have to look over everything, be sure everything is at the top of its game. Otherwise, you wreck at worst or you don't finish races at best. Um, what's what's the the relationship between the, the show car that was the hatch and the race car that was a hatch? Yeah, I think um, it, it goes hand in hand for sure. And one of the main reasons why I liked having such a clean race car was because I, I liked I basically grew up in the kind of car show Honda world where, you know, you go to car meets and you see like a super nice Civic and stanced out and nice wheels, whatever. So I kind of appreciated how a good Honda looks and it kind of went hand in hand with the racing because I wanted the car to look good, you know, cause I wanted to take good pictures when it's sitting in the garage or when it's on the track. Um, but like a lot of things basically helped the race car aspect of it was, I don't really like working on messy and dirty race cars and stuff that isn't tidy. It really stresses me out. So <laughs> when, when I, when I do the work on the car, I try to make it as clean and organized as I can. So it's easier to work on. It's easier to spot issues. So I basically a year or two ago over the winter, I, I took everything out of the engine bay, cleaned it all up, um, painted the whole engine bay, made everything look pretty and I even like did the extended shock towers, which is kind of a funny thing because that kind of came from the partial world. Because on the Hondas, if you run them really low, the upper control arms hit the shock towers. So what the stance kids did, they they basically sell like these shock tower extension things that you can weld in. And I did all that to make it look pretty, but also to kind of have a little bit of function so I can run the car lower, not bottom it out. But stuff like making sure the engine bay is clean. It makes my job easier because you can spot issues much easier. So if you have an axle boot that tears in a session, you look in the engine bay and you can immediately spot, hey, there's a lot of grease spewing it's all over the firewall yep. and you immediately realize there's an issue. So you can kind of tell when stuff is going wrong 
And it's just easier to do when you have a tidy workspace, when the engine bay is clean, when you have clean wiring, it's easier to spot when you have cuts or tears on the wires and it's just more pleasant to work on. And then I think primarily for me, the main reason why is it, it takes pictures really well. And sure. in the motorsports world, like it's, it's kind of a joke. People like, you know, laugh that it's kind of a car show, but you know, it, it does attract sponsors. Um, and I, I think I've done quite well in my racing careers because if someone's sponsoring your race car, obviously they want it to perform well, but they also want it to look, good. you know, it's, it's one of the things that, you know, it's, it's kind of an unwritten rule is a good looking race car is going to attract more partnerships and sponsorships. And I think the EG was a great canvas to kind of gather those partners early on. And I don't know, I just always liked having a pretty race car. So all of that kind of tied together. And I think it definitely helped the success of the program. It helped me work on the car and it helps me be happy when I work on it because last thing I want to do is work in a rat's nest. Um, when I first got the car, the whole cabin harness, it was a rat's nest. And I, the car ran, but I, I thought, hey, if something goes wrong during the weekend, there's no way I'm going to be able to fix this. So that was one of the main reasons why I tore out the whole harness inside and redid it from scratch to make it simple, cleaner. And so it's just like little details like that, that I just tackled one by one and basically made it as best as I could make it. And mm. over the five years I've owned that car, that's, that's basically how it ended up. Is, is that now that car raced with SCCA before coming to grid life? Yeah, the cars actually had a really long history. It was built actually in the early 2000s on the West Coast. I think it was an H4 or an H5 Honda Challenge race car. Okay. And then over the years, I think it raced, it got sold to a guy in Kentucky. And then when I graduated college, started getting a job at Honda, I finally had the budget to kind of be more serious about it. And I found it, picked it up for a pretty good deal. At that point, it was super bare bones. It had basic suspension. It had a D-series engine, but it had a cage and it had this, some of the safety items that I needed. And it was a great starter car. And then I guess um, over those years, I, I kind of fixed it up a little bit. I started in SCCA with it because a lot of the friends that I had, um, mainly through work um, on the Honda America racing team, a lot of those guys did SCCA, STL. And so that's kind of what I went into when I first started road racing is that class, built the car for that class. It had a B18 C5. It had mild aero, like decent suspension. And I did okay in SCCA, I think, with it. Um, I went to the SCCA runoffs twice and two years in a row. I was the runner-up, almost had the win, <laughs> but both times I was within half a second of the guy in first. So it left a little bit of a sour taste, but yep. I love the battles with those guys. And I always kind of been friends with Adam Jabay. So it's pretty funny. Adam Jabay kind of taught me a lot of what Basically, I, I learned in the racing world is when I first started, I, I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I worked a lot with Adam Jabay, Christian Ship, Brad Adams, even Mike Taylor. And I still talk to those guys almost daily every day. But those guys taught me everything I needed to know. And then Adam, obviously, found one of the founders of Grid Life. Once he started talking about a road race series, I really wanted to be involved in that. So I think, what was it, 2019 officially made the switch from SCCA to Grid Life, and I think it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. So I know kind of conjecture and uh, 
lore of the different racing organizations out there. You know, once you, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, once you came over to the Touring Cup with Gridlife, um, that was basically it for anything else. Why, like why, and I'm not at all asking you to talk shit, nor am I talking shit about any other racing organization, but for you, why was, um, why was that switch a good one? So, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed SCCA and an awesome time with it. Honestly, it's a really, it's a really great, um, organization. And I think a lot of people should look into it to like kind of start up get their novice license and race it. But there was a lot of things that grid life did differently. That was extremely appealing. Um, I guess number one was the one class format. So you had just, it's just one class on track. Now with SCCA, we have a similar format for runoffs where it's only one class on track, but throughout the year you're racing with three, four, maybe five other classes. And it kind of gets in the way of the battles that you have with other cars in your class. Um, and then number two, I'll, I'll probably list a lot here, but number two with the grid life I'll keep track. is yeah. Um, the competition has been intense because you have grid life attracts drivers from all different sanctioning bodies. You have SCCA drivers, you have NASA, you have time attack drivers, you have all these, even endurance, you know, AERWL, you have all these different drivers that are at the top of their class in their series coming to grid life because they've been noticing, Hey, there's a lot of fast guys. I want to check this out. And they show it to our events and they stay because of how competitive and how fast everybody is. So that's another big reason. And I'm, I'm a very competitive guy. So the more people that I get to race with, the more I enjoy it. Hmm. And then number three, let's see, um, the four race format. So 15 minute races. Yep. Um, it's just more track time. We have more races. They're, they're quick. They're fun. You don't have these long, boring races that after a few laps, the competition kind of dies out. Um, in the CCA, we had two longer races. I think there were, I think one was 25 minutes and one would be 30 minutes, which is great, but having four short ones, it's just so rapid fire, so much adrenaline and it, it's quick and it's the best part of racing. The, the first 15 minutes of racing is always going to be the best because it's, it's what, five or six laps, maybe eight, depending on the tracks. Sure. It's nonstop action. And then you get to go again later in that day. So I really love that aspect. Um, and then. Number one, I think my favorite thing is the track family with grid life is the best. Like, I don't think anybody can compete with it because I've been around the grid life paddock for years now, like way before GLTC, like I used to volunteer and just, you know, do HPDEs. And there's so many people that I know and love within the grid life family and community that it's always a pleasure going to the track with these guys. And at the end of the day, everyone's there just to have a good time. Like there's really no drama in GLTC, which is the best part. Everybody just wants to have a great rate. There's a little bit of drama, <laughs> but most of the people, um, we eat, try like, to slap them in the face. Everybody to keep, wants keep to have fun. They want to have a good race. And if they don't have that kind of vibe, then they're usually not going to come back. So the people that stay there, in my opinion, are some of the best people, some of the best racers. And, you know, there's been, plenty of times this year where my favorite races are races where a good friend of mine has won. You know, I don't really 
like to remember the races where I win or whatever. Like I, the most memorable ones to me is if I have a good battle and my opponent comes out on top and beats me, you know, that's usually the ones that I remember the most. Cause it's, it's such a fun battle with these guys and especially having a good friend win the race. Um, like DJ Allison Drini won this year at mid Ohio and super happy for him. Tom, when he won at NCM, that was one of the first ones that he won. So super happy for Tom and, um, always love battling with Aaron Lichty, Jeremy Swenson. The battles with him this year has been absolutely fantastic. Loved racing with that guy as a rookie. I'm super impressive. So just love meeting these new guys, these these new drivers, and just having a good time with the track. I always thought that that was interesting. I remember one of my favorite moments was this year but back in 2020 at autobahn with um eric meadows yeah i remember he was he was right behind right behind me for like three four laps in a row and i just couldn't shake him and he finally like found the one chink Mm. in my armor and he did it and i remembered becky was of course we're on the phone like during races and stuff and I was like laughing out loud when he finally pulled the move to uh, get up alongside me, and then he had me going into the next breaking zone. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about. <clears throat> I don't want to say losing, but being beat when you feel like you're doing well, like it's it's still a good feeling for some reason. Yeah, I mean my my goal in looking for a class is. You know, I want to, I want to be, if I finish 10th and I have a great battle and I have fun race, like that is where I want to be, you know, like I don't want to be in a class where, which SCCA kind of was like this, where, you know, not a lot of the past people would show for events. So you would go to a majors event in mid Ohio and you would have maybe one guy that has a competitive car and you have a battle with one guy and then that's it. And you kind of, you get your wins and you get contingency and you're, you know, you're happy. You're like, yes, this is great. You know, I got, I got four free Hoosiers this weekend. I got some HPD bucks, but then it's just like, well, what's kind of the point if you're not really racing against anybody, like we're all doing this to battle. We're all doing this to race each other. You know, nobody wants to go out, get a five second gap and then drive by themselves for 15 minutes or at runoffs. No one like, people at runoffs that win by 40 seconds you know are they having fun like okay you guys won a runoffs race but you didn't really have a battle you didn't have that challenge and that's kind of what i've searched for always and that's kind of what's led me to gltc is we have these amazing drivers and we have these cars that are super awesome like the variety of cars we have in gltc is insane and it's so cool to see it and it's because the rules are kind of formatted to kind of keep the cost down you know we don't have to do crazy engine builds um as long as you have a good dyno and you make minimum weight and you have a decent tire suspension setup you know you can be competitive so that's one of the things i love about it is it it kind of formats the series to have people to give people a chance to be competitive um when in a lot of series you have to kind of open your pockets up a little bit more so it just it gives more people opportunity to race and i love having a huge field of cars that is just super talented and fast so in when i was around club racing a bunch secca nasa um one of the one of the unspoken mantras is uh nobody cares in the fact that like 
if you look in the in the stands, if you will, around on a normal SCCA or NASA weekend, there's like uh, the wives of three guys and uh, somebody's mom, and those are the only people watching the race other than other racers. And then I go to grid life events, and there's a lot of people there. And it's not just the people at the event, but I know this sounds weird for club racer people, but there's people who care how you do on the weekend that have never met you. Like you specifically, Eric, there's people who follow your season of grid life racing as yeah. an amateur racer. And that's radically different than any other club racing series in the U S I mean, a, what do you think about that? And B why? I, th I think it's uh, I don't know. Sometimes I don't really believe it when people follow me. <laughs> Or like when people come up to me and they're nervous to talk to them, I'm like, why, what? I'm just, a, I'm just me. Like, I'm not a celebrity. I'm it's, I don't know. I think it's weird sometimes, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it, I, I find it like very inspiring that people are out there, you know, kind of watching what I'm doing. And I don't know, I'm, it's very humbling to kind of have that support, but I think um, Adam kind of says it best. Like he wanted the whole idea behind GLTC was, to show club racing to a younger crowd and have it appeal to those guys because club racing doesn't really do that. Um, like you go to an SEC or NASA event and you have multi-class racing as a like spectator that really doesn't know the series. You have no idea how to follow the races. You have all these different classes. You don't know who's first. You don't really see the battles. It's, it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on. And it's also 30 minutes. So by the end of the race, everyone's spread out anyway. So like the theory of grid life, GLTC was, you know, maintain that attention span to people watching. And it's also the same thing with the, you know, the live streams is every event has a really awesome live stream that people can watch from home. So it's really easy to follow along with the racing at the track at home. A lot of people have the social media so they can follow on social media and you kind of build a fan base around the series. And I, I don't know, Grid Life has just, I think they nailed it in the formats that they do and the presentation. And another big aspect of the crowds is there's a lot more other things going on at grid life. You go to the festival events, you have drifting, you have time attack, you have the fastest, you know, bodied cars in the country at grid life. Most of the time, like you have the Corvettes and unlimited time attack that are running GT LM times, which is insane. You know, and then you have the drifters, you have a lot of the famous formula drift guys, and then you have the concerts. So grid life attracts a huge crowd for all these different things. And most of the time they stick around and they watch the GLTC races and they're like, what is this? Like, this is awesome. Like I never seen something like this before. I never seen 40 cars going hundred miles per hour into turn one at Gingerman. Like this is rad. And I think it kind of attracts a lot of those fans. And then they kind of learn a little bit more and they follow the series after that. Whereas those fans would never have experienced anything like it. They would never go to an SCCA event just to spectate. They kind of just ended up at a grid life event and a race happened and they enjoyed it. And hopefully they follow it after that. So I think grid life just, they do everything right in those aspects, especially with social media. I stood on the rail at NOLA last year and listened to people who just were fairly local to New Orleans and showed up and they knew like the top six guys on grid and they these weren't these weren't guys who club raced or anything i don't think like hearing them talk to each other they didn't have race cars they just liked cars 
but they had followed grid life enough. This was the first event they got to go to and they knew who people were already. And, awesome. and I've been trying to, to w- figure out what's going on since then, because like you show up, even SCCA runoffs, nobody knows. I mean, nobody outside racing knows who most of the people are and grid life. I mean, you go to a pro race event in the U S in the support classes, nobody knows who the people are. And then you've got people who show up to watch specific people race grid life was fantastic and bizarre. Um, and I've been trying to figure it out for the last year. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I mean, they figured it out. You'd have to ask Chris how he's done it, but I think, I think they figured it out, which no other race series has done. And, you know, I get told all the time that a lot of people prefer watching GLTC over actual pro racing, which is like, it's, it's mind blowing to think about that, that people love watching us club racers yes. versus, you know, the pro side stuff. And I think a lot of the reason is it's, it's the variety of cars in the class, you know, people can kind of relate to, you know, their favorite car, you know, you can have someone who loves Porsches and they're watching Aaron Lickie run around in his Cayman. And they're like, that is freaking sweet. Like that dude has the cleanest Cayman and he's out there battling all these other cars. Like that's rad. You have all the Honda kids that hopefully, you know, love me, DJ, you know, the ASM guys running Hondas out there. Um, all the Miata guys, obviously, you know, there's just so much variety that anybody can come to the sport and relate to a car that they love. And it's cars, you know, that have a lot of love around them. You know, the modern stuff these days, you know, it's, it's not really relatable. Um, but the old nineties cars and two thousands, um, everybody loves those things. You know, there's an FDRX seven racing around with the V eight. Like that's how rad is that? It's so freaking cool. It's just, um, I don't know, just wide variety of cool cars. I think a lot of the cars, they look cool because in grid life, we kind of stress a cool factor, <laughs> which is why my car looks cool. And I think it appeals to a lot of the fans. So I think it's just all those reasons combined and you roll it up into one package, which is GLTC. And I think it, it basically spits out this entertaining package that hopefully continues to grow and it continues to reach new people because what we need in, in club racing is we need people to be motivated to basically get back out there with us because if we don't reach out to these people they won't know what club racing is and slowly but surely club racing will eventually die or become too expensive so the goal is to essentially breed a new generation of club racers and the amount of you know people that reach out to me on instagram and facebook you know how do i get involved in this and the the biggest problem i think right now in club racing in general is it's so difficult to figure out how to get into it where you know SCCA, it's it's not really clear cut or NASA. Like I guess NASA has a really good program because you can do the HPDEs, level up, and eventually get a comp license. But other series, you know, nobody really knows. There's no you know how to manual. And for GLTC, you know, you just got to get track time, do HPDEs. You know, um, we have Scott Giles who runs the novice program. So if you have the experience of racing you know, you can slowly get into the wheel to wheel program with it. And we kind of had this clear format of getting people into the racing side, the club racing side. And I don't think a lot of series do that too well. So I don't know. Anytime someone asks me how to get involved, you know, I always love to answer them and kind of guide them through it. And I always tell them, well, you know, see time, you know, get on the track, get used to the car. And then once you feel like you're confident with the car, then start looking into kind of into club racing, novice schools or, you know, even just reaching out to Scott Giles and, you know, asking him, Hey, what do I need to do to get into this field? And we'll figure it out. 
Now, when somebody walks up to your paddock, you've got a pretty dope 10 by 20 pop-up tent that matches your car. And you've got a surprisingly big toolbox considering what it comes out of. And, but the way you get to and from events is with a Honda Ridgeline, which I'm told is a pickup truck. And and a open aluminum trailer right behind it. And with sometimes you and Emily and a friend and a dog stuffed on the inside. And that's, and like, that's really about it. Well, first of all, it doesn't compare to how you've been getting to events. (laughs) That's for sure. But we we, we don't need to say I'm the the next step up above that, which is not much better. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I started out kind of small. Um, I had a Tacoma pickup truck. And it's a funny story because I actually bought that EG race car before I had a truck or a trailer. When I when I first saw that car for sale, I was like, well, I need it. It's a good deal. I know this is going to happen eventually. So I just committed to it. So then after that point, I bought a pretty shitty Tacoma pickup truck. It was a V6, but it did not tow great. And I knew I needed a light trailer. So I got the aluminum trailer. And I upgraded Tacoma to get a Ridgeline because I'm a dumb Honda fanboy, right. which was the biggest mistake I've did. Um, it actually towed pretty well with, within like the first couple of seasons of me racing. And then as I progressed, you just start carrying more and more stuff with you. And it's just, it's just so much extra weight. Yeah. And I had a problem, like I couldn't fit all the tires and stuff in the, the Ridgeline bed. So I had to buy a tire rack for the trailer to put all my tires on it. Well, now with the tire rack, it's such a huge drag penalty that the ridge line can't really push it past 75. I got so much weight in the back of that thing that it's basically on the bump stops. So it's, it's uh, I'll admit it. I have outgrown that setup significantly. <laughs> I was actually debating on getting a, a van and clothes like a sprinter, not a sprinter van, but like a Chevy express van this off season and building that. But that's, going to be delayed because I'm building a race car instead. But anyway, I don't know. I just, um, I liked having all my stuff on my property. So I didn't really want to get a big enclosed trailer. I didn't have the money for it. Um, even though the aluminum trailer was kind of expensive, but they hold their value. So that was my theory behind it. Yep. And I needed a truck that I can tow with and then drive to work every day. Cause that was my daily for a while. And I didn't want to get like a big diesel. And obviously I was a dumb Honda guy. So I got a Ridgeline. Um, but yeah, like I said, like I'm at the point where I've, I've outgrown that significantly. And luckily the hatch has so much space in it that most of my stuff goes into the race car, which yeah. like, it's just tiring because you're shoving these huge, heavy boxes into the race car. And then when you get to the track, you have to unload everything. You have to set up paddock. And I, I remember, I think it was Nola and I was just exhausted. I was like, you know what? This sucks. Like, I can't do this anymore. Like I either need a van where all my stuff stays inside or I need to get in a close trailer, which both of those will require a bigger vehicle. So I am looking to upgrade eventually, but I do kind of like the fact that I'm toying with this ridiculous setup and I somewhat make it happen. Um, the Ridgeline has been dead reliable for years. I haven't really fixed anything on it. Um, I will say though, when I'm towing with all my stuff, it gets like 10 to 11 MPGs. Like it is bad. Yeah. And it has such a small tank. It's got 20 gallons. 
So you have to stop every 200 miles, which it's brutal. It's just, yeah. it's just does not work. <laughs> yeah. But Hey, I think it's better than driving your race car to the track. <laughs> I will absolutely not disagree with you. Um, and as somebody who, you know, now has a Chevy express fan, uh, highly recommended. Yeah, I will. I will get one eventually, but yeah, like I said, it's just, I've kind of slowly built it up, you know, and I never, I kind of wish I like looking back at it now, I wish I would have just bought a bigger truck from day one. It would have saved me money. I think it would have towed better and it would have gave me the opportunity to like upgrade to an enclosed. Cause the problem is like you buy a Ridgeline, like you, you're stuck with the open trailer aluminum life. Like you can't get a bigger trailer, but I don't know. Like it's, it's treated me well so far. So I think, once I finish the sedan, I am going to look for a better tow vehicle, or maybe I'll just drive the sedan to the track. Cause I think I'm going to make that street legal. I mean, oh, I like that. I like that a it's, lot. I'll, I'll be totally honest driving the race car to events. Oh, it's kind of miserable. It's not the best, but it has distinct advantages over trailering. So it's, it's really, you know, where do you want to put your money? It's a lot cheaper to drive to the track. Uh, it's a lot yeah. quicker to drive to the track. Um, but yeah, if you think your prep level is good now, it's you're basically driving an endurance race to and from your yeah yeah. I mean that, that's what terrifies me is because I mean you've experienced at NCM. There's situations that are out of your control where bad bad shit happens and you end up with a car that you can't drive home like. But luckily you had a lot of people help you out get the car. Um, but yeah, it, that's, that's, that's a tough thing to kind of think about when you're, when you're doing club racing, especially, you know? yeah. Yeah, I don't but know. man, like you're a brave man. Like about. you did it for years and I applaud you for that. Cause that's, that's freaking awesome. I, whenever I see your car, I always try to like do an Instagram story and like brag about you. Like, man, that guy raced, that guy races his car and then he drives it home. Like how so, badass is that? Just so dumb. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> it, can't say it was the smartest thing, but no, um, it's definitely awesome. But I mean, the, and that's, we're super thankful that we could take it on the one lap for the last. Yeah, that was awesome. It's, it was a good time. It, can't believe you guys managed to get that car back together and get back out there and that, like finish the whole event. Insane. Props to you, man. A lot of that that's was. That's what you should do, Eric. If you're going to make it street legal, <laughs> dedicate yourself to doing the one lap at there least it once in it. There so. It so here's the funny thing about that car. Um, because it's going to be so low and it's going to have such a big tall tire and wheel i'm gonna have like next to zero turning radius i have to basically put like stoppers in the steering rack to prevent it from turning too much because it's just gonna rub into the fender or the frame rails so driving that car on the street would be an absolute nightmare because you'd have to make 20 point u-turns um i think it's gonna be a nightmare on track but i'll get to that bridge once i finish it (laughs) i'm i'm really thinking like turning up to grid at gingerman is gonna be a real pain in the butt (laughs) yeah everything's gonna it's it's gonna be ridiculous but i'm up for the challenge which is why i kind of want to do it but i'm gonna have to like do the formula one thing where like you lift the car up and you put on like on skateboard to get into paddock because it's it's gonna have no turning radius so if you ever if you ever see me sideways on track I would assume I'm going to spin out because I'm not going to have the angle to correct it. So just just giving you a fair warning if I ever end up in that situation. Cross my mind. Um, Now, you you said you work for Honda, and you've done some pretty cool stuff with 
Hart, H A R T. Um, yes. What uh? What what would you say you do there? Uh, well, the past year or two, nothing, because COVID kind of shut that down. But yeah. um, to explain what Hart is, Hart is the Honda of America Racing Team, and it is a, a racing team part of the Honda manufacturing, and it's a full volunteer team. So people that work at Honda, um, any of our facilities in Ohio or Alabama can join the team and it's, it's all volunteers. You know, you go after work, you spend hours in the shop and we race both club racing and professional, um, in mainly IMSA. So before COVID I was pretty active with the team. Um, I actually done a few club races with them in an eighth gen civic SI in SCCA, but our main focus of the heart team was, was pro side, which we had, at the time we had what we had 2016 or 2017 civic SIs that we ran an IMSA ST. And then once that series ended, we actually moved up to the NSX GT three for a season, which was kind of a nightmare because you have a team full of volunteers that can't dedicate the amount of hours that car needs. And our main goal was to just do the endurance racing. Um, it did not go well. Um, we barely finished the races mainly because we've had error, like something broke on the car or whatever but that was an awesome experience because we actually got to compete in the 24 hours of daytona we did the 12 hours of lama or not lama um sebring which we would have maybe podium if we didn't get involved in someone else's wreck but super cool experience to be able to i was uh at that time i was uh, one of the i was part of the crew um i did fueling for the GT3 stuff, but it was such a cool experience to be at the track and the paddock and experience the pro side stuff. And then after the GT3, I think it was 18 and 2019, we actually switched to the Civic TCR. Yes. So we did full seasons in those cars and our drivers, we had Ryan Eversley, um, Chad Gilsinger, we had Cameron Lawrence a few times. So that was a lot of fun. And I actually managed to be a crew chief for a few of those races right before COVID. So that was fun. I, I crew chiefed at Laguna Seca. I crew chiefed at um, Road, uh, Road Atlanta, which was a ton of fun. Um, it's super complicated. If you think racing is complex, you know, doing the endurance stuff with cautions and multi-class stuff, it was super complex, but it was fun. It was a fun challenge. Um, we did okay. Um, it's, it's just super difficult with a volunteer team, but it's, it's a lot of fun to work on those cars. And a lot of the ideas that I get on my own car, I actually learn from these pro built cars. So there's, there's so much stuff to learn on the cars, engineering side of it, setup side, you know, how to do things at the track that you can apply to like your everyday club racing or endurance club racing. So I don't know. It's just a fun experience. Um, we are slowly starting that back up. COVID has kind of pause all activity for two years, but now we are ramping back up. So hopefully next year we'll get to do some more races. I think we're actually going to go to Daytona. Um, I think that's going to be a four hour race with the civic TCR. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to that one. Nice. But it's, it's like I said, it, it's more time. You know, I spend time in my garage working on my stuff and you got to spend time at this shop working on that car. So it's a lot of time management that goes on when you're trying to, do both of these teams so there's some club stuff i want to do with the heart team as well you know we're trying to do some more endurance side things which i've never really done endurance it's kind of a funny story 
we were actually registered and we were at the mid Ohio AER endurance race a few months ago. And it was a last second decision. You know, we had one of these eighth genocides that we wanted to race and we registered the week before the event. So we had to get this car ready to go. And this car has sat for two years. So we put so many hours into this car right before this event, swap the engine, swap brakes, you know, safety equipment. We did all this work. We showed up to mid Ohio, got the car ready to go, got a tech. We did five practice laps. I was driving. And then at the sixth lap, the engine blew up. So I was, we were so excited to do this endurance racing. And it was for us, it was me and, and Tyler. We were like some of the main crew guys. You know, we did a lot of sprint stuff, but we never did endurance racing. We really wanted to try. We wanted to like kind of dip our feet into endurance stuff. And we were so pumped. We worked on this car all week. And then we get to the event, the engine blows up. And that was basically our weekend. Yeah. So basically, yeah, that, another, basically <laughs> super disappointing. But sprint race. our plan for next year is to fix that car back up and make it more reliable and get a better engine in it. So we can do more endurance stuff. And so that's heart, which is the volunteer kind of after hours group. What do you do at Honda? Currently at Honda, I do emissions for new model vehicles. So like when these new models are kind of in the development phase, I'm mainly in charge of, running them on a dyno and then verifying the emissions, you know, passes all regulations and stuff like that. So it's a relatively new job to me. I've, I've done a few different things at Honda. Um, I did harness design for a few years and I was, when I first got into Honda, I actually worked a lot with suppliers on, you know, manufacturing quality for parts. Um, but over the years I've kind of switched positions, tried new things. And now I am in the emissions role, which is, um, pretty cool, honestly. Um, it's something totally different. You know, you don't really understand how much goes into emissions until you're actually doing the job and working with multi-million dollar equipment and analyzers. It's it's pretty complex, but it's cool. You know, I get to look at data and stuff like that. So um, it's a pretty fun job. I enjoy Honda. Honda has been really good to me. And obviously as a Honda guy, it's it's kind of cool working in Honda. So you kind of goes full circle. Do you build any cars that you actually like at the plant? Do I build any? I well, don't. not you, but I mean the, <laughs> the 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 car. I know um, when we talked to Carl before, he was always like, "Well, you know, we mm. do minivans and MDXs." Hey, their and minivan was, is sweet. I <laughs> know, but it was he was like he was like emotionally, it's hard to be like super excited that like yes, minivans. Like, do you do you work with anything at the factory where you're like, dude, I'm so happy I get to play with this? So I have. I've been involved in a lot of projects. Like the good thing about my role is I kind of work with a lot of the plants in the area. So we have three main factories. We have the Mary's Auto Plant, which we do most of the Accords, the TLXs, ILXs, stuff like that. We do some CRVs. We have East Liberty, which does most of the SUVs. Then we have PMC, which is a performance manufacturing center, which that's where we build the NSX. So I've been fortunate to be involved in quite a few NSX projects. I mean, I was doing emissions testing on that new 2022 model NSX, I think, that got released with the facelift. So I was looking at that car before it was released, and it's pretty cool kind of being involved in that project before anybody even knows about it. And I did the emissions on that, which was kind of fun. And, you know, occasionally I get to drive cars and, and test them. We have like a little test track. So been involved in a few projects on the Civic SI. So um, I think currently Honda has been doing pretty good with i think 
releasing cars that have some kind of emotion. I, I really love the new Civic SI. I think the new Civic platform is going to be awesome. Um, I think the Type R, I can't wait for that to be released. I think that's going to look sick. Um, a lot of drama on the Integra, um, <laughs> which, you know, I guess we'll see once that car comes out, how, how it does, but I'll, I'll give, I'll give my two cents and I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll let you go. It's, I think that is what a modern day Integra would have looked like if it had just always been a thing like the Civic, the Civic and the Integra yep. were always kind of yeah. buddies. And it's like when it came out is like the four door slope back and it's like, yeah, that makes sense. It's not like what your heart may want, but it's like, yeah, that makes sense. I think I think it does make sense. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a pretty cool car. I like it. Um, obviously, it's not going to be. I'm not going to like it as much as my Integra Type R from 1998. You know, it's people get stuck in the past, and I think a lot of people had the same reaction with the Civic Type R that came out recently. You know, a lot of people it came out and people hated it because it was so flashy. It had all pinstriping, the fake grills. Everyone hated it, and I think over the years it, it grew. And I think it's an awesome car nowadays, and it's it's got a lot of love in the aftermarket community. And I'm honestly. If Honda keeps making manuals, I'll be happy. They can release whatever they want. If it's still a manual, I'll still support them. So, <laughs> but I think yeah, the Civic SI is good. I think the Integra is going to be good. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we make the NSX, which is I think it's pretty awesome. I think a lot of people hit on that car too. But man, if you ever driven one of those, they're freaking awesome. My only complaint with the Integra is that like if you squared it up just a little bit in back, you would have the coolest wagon. Ever. I, yeah, I think I think the biggest problem is like designers have to design around these new safety regulations, right. which right. dictate the shape of the car. You know that that's the biggest problem we have nowadays is you can't get the low nose that we've had in the '90s. You know, it's just it's just it's just what it is yeah. these days. So kind yeah. of be happy with what you get and be glad that we still have manuals because I don't know. I like my manuals. I want to keep driving manual cars. Honestly, they drive so good. Like the new Civics drive so good. Yeah, yeah I think they're great cars. The, there's good engineering going on there. So I'm usually not someone to buy a new car, but if I would, it, it'd probably be a new Civic. But I won't because I have a, too many projects currently. <laughs> yeah, and the fact that the Honda's even making cars anymore, like full stop. The fact that you said that, yeah, you know, they're making some cars. Like nobody does that anymore. Like yeah, yeah, Car, yeah. Cars in general, everything's an SUV now, and everything's turning into electric. So, we, I think we got some scary times ahead of us as a as an automotive enthusiast. But I think it's also exciting. I think electric cars are going to be awesome for like driving day to day. But I still want to maintain my '90s shitbox Civics for the track. Yeah, <laughs> that'll never change. Yeah, I mean, as as long as I can, this uh, this really dumb Miata is gonna gonna keep ticking so hell yeah man it's awesome um yeah it's currently in the body shop hopefully about ready to get picked up because after ncm it only got fixed to the point where it would go down the road straight yeah and that's oh. really about it so it's like you were talking about you know really making sure your car looks good on the weekends and stuff and and i i still had rob you know i was able to get him to like take some some glamour shots of the Miata yeah. at mid Ohio. And it's like, they were amazing pictures, but God, that car looked, I mean, it told a story for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's kind of a shame because I, for my hatch, like I prided myself, you know, not crashing the car, you know, not crashing into people. And I like maintaining a clean body with no dents, no scratches. And but what do I end up doing? I ended up crashing into a damn wall. <laughs> well, all right. So we're there. Let's talk about it real quick. Um, yeah. So essentially the finals for grid life, uh, the last grid life GLTC race weekend of the season, the last race of that weekend race four, and it had started to drizzle and essentially, and we were driving back already at this point. Um, mm, I had to yeah. get my, had to get my son back and I was watching it on the live stream and it took a lot of parsing and like a few hours before like information started to trickle out effectively coming through the kink uh two cars had touched just enough that they both got creepy and dj bumped the wall and kind of slid down it and you were up somebody's butt behind all of this so you couldn't really see much not necessarily okay Um, talk, talk me through that yeah, so I was a few car lengths behind DJ and um, Eric Jensen, and they went too wide through the kink. And obviously, yeah, it was it was drizzling. The track was slick. Leading up to that race, I think I swapped tires back and forth at least three or four times. Um, I was a little bit stressed out. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're going first lap, first hot lap. You know, everyone's trying to learn the track. It's slick in some spots. Um, so luckily, earlier that weekend, we had somewhat of a, a wet race, wet slash dry race. race two. And I was able to kind of figure out the good wet line, which is essentially around the outside of Carousel and the outside of the kink. There's so much grip there. I was on Hoosier wets. So even on the wets, I was basically taking that outside line. So coming up to the kink, DJ is on the outside of Jensen because he had a good run on the outside because there was grip there. And then Jensen, he had a little bit of a wiggle um, in the wet, and they barely touched. They they bumped a little bit, which unfortunately I think they touched with a wheel, which is usually magnifies the bump. So it sent DJ off into the gravel towards the wall, and he managed to save it. So at the same time, I think I was coming around the kink, and I was passing. I forget who was driving the green Cayman at the time. Um, his name ex- escapes me. But I was making a move on the green Cayman on the outside because there was a lot more grip. And while I was making that move, I was essentially keeping an eye on him to make sure that he wasn't going to slip wide. So I was kind of covering myself to basically be prepared to give him room if he kind of slips wide because I knew the inside would be slick. And coming out of that corner, I I don't think I was really paying attention to the cars in front of me because I had my eyes fixed on DJ, which was in the grass trying to correct his slide, almost hitting the wall. And then you kind of become target fixated on what's going on. Like basically I was targeted fixated on DJ and I got to a point where once I finally started looking ahead, Jensen was basically slowing down because he was worried that DJ was going to spin in front of him. So at that point it was too late for me to have a reaction. It was a split second decision at my end. And I ended up choosing to maintain my speed and try to shoot for a gap that was to the right of Jensen, which unfortunately was right in front of a meal tab. 
So I try to shoot for this gap, which is ironic because that's the one thing that Adam Jabay stresses in the driver's meeting. But in the heat of the moment, that was the only out that I saw because right behind me was Rob Manicherry. He was essentially that was a- less than a foot behind me. So the two options I had were to slam on the brakes and potentially risk getting rear-ended, which could have caused another stack up or go for this gap. And I chose going for that gap, which was available on the right. And I essentially cut across Emil's nose, which spun me right into the wall. So the, the biggest error that I made was reacting way too late to what was going on in front of me. Um, if I would have kind of realized that all the cars in front of me checked up at that point, I think I could have eased off the brake or eased off the throttle, slow down more gradually and had more of a chance to prevent that stack up. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shoulda, coulda, wouldas. At the end of the day, I, I picked the wrong decision and I'm, I'm not really happy with what I ended up doing because obviously I, I wrecked my own car. But what I am grateful for is that I was the only car that was wrecked in that scenario because crashing at Road America, especially around the kink, it's such a narrow track that I could have spun and I could have spun in front of everybody and that could have been significantly worse. So the fact that somehow I managed to spin myself, crashed into the wall, crossed the track without collecting anybody else with me, you know, I take that, um, that makes me, you know, not as angry with myself because if I would have taken someone else out with me, I would have been very disappointed in myself and it would have been, it would have been painful to involve someone else. So well, the I, whole situation, it sucks, but it is what it is. Yeah, and I remember, you know, watching the uh the live broadcast and that's you know, again, if you watch any other race series, I don't say any other, but these like that kind of incident that we saw collects seven or eight cars pretty easily. And yeah, it was it was pure luck that no one else got involved, I think. But yeah. Um but you're okay. Yeah, I was good. It was weird because it didn't really seem like a big hit. I've hit the wall a few times, but I've hit walls covered in tires, which significantly reduced the impact. So when I hit this wall on the right, I was spun, and I figured, oh, this is not going to be too bad. I'm just going to graze it. But it was a full concrete wall, and it just crunched the entire right side. And then I slid over to the left, came to a stop. Luckily, I was fine. I had good safety equipment to kind of save me in that scenario, but I didn't expect how much damage the car had with the actual incident itself. It just didn't seem to add up. But I mean, once again, you're racing these old nineties Hondas and they're made of tin cans. So you crash into a concrete wall, like car's probably not going to survive. So yeah, that was essentially the end of that car. Yeah. And you, and you made the decision to, um, essentially, quit like not try to fix the hatch and to just go to the sedan which um i've got to imagine is kind of hard because you've spent so much time and energy and money and had so many experiences in that that hatch of yours to go to another platform yeah i mean for, it was for sure difficult. I was in a pretty bad space, right, especially right after the incident. I mean, just watching the car get unloaded off of the wrecker. And it, it was painful just because of the hours that I put into that car. You know, you can't get that back. And a lot of the stuff on the car, it, it's, it's a lot of money that basically just got thrown out, which 
in this sport, you know, we're all trying to do this. We're all trying to have a budget and save as much money as we can. And so when you wreck a car like that, that's a huge setback financially, but yeah, but the hours and the pride in the car, you know, that was the thing that hurt the most. And I, I kind of looked into it, you know, took the engine out, really analyzed all the damage. And unfortunately the, the biggest issue was the car didn't have any intrusion bars. So when it crashed in the front right corner, the frame rail pushed the entire firewall back at the bottom, like almost half a foot back. So the entire firewall was compromised. The floorboards was tweaked. There's a lot of damage for that impact. Obviously, the both frame rails were badly damaged. And it was kind of difficult because I had to make the decision, hey, do I want to fix this? And who can fix it? Are they going to fix it right? It's going to be a lot of money to fix this because I got a couple of quotes that were there were a lot of money and, you know, the frame guys were, you know, kind of saying, you know, we have to pull this first to hopefully get the firewall back in place and then we can replace frame rails. But doing that, it's, it's a 50, 50 chance. And we're not sure we can't guarantee it's going to be hundred percent after that. Yep. And so then eventually I came to the decision, you know, Hey, it might be time to build my dream civic, which is the four door. And I think that's really the only thing that has kind of kept me motivated is finally having that opportunity to build that dream car. You know, I think if I didn't have that, you know, dream build in my head, I probably would have not done anything, honestly, and just kind of, you know, took a break for a season or two. Um, but it gave me the motivation to start a new build with this four-door and build a car from scratch and do it right. Because a lot of things on the hatch that, weren't up to my standards. I think the cage was pretty, pretty bare bones, basic, which I was never too happy about. So with the new build, you know, I want to do it right. I want to build a really strong cage and like, I just want to be safer in the car personally. So like, there's a lot of cage work that I want to implement just to, just to be safer. Cause you know, my mom, she's terrified every time I race and, you know, Emily, obviously like, I don't want to end up in another accident and, you know, hurt myself. And, um, we didn't really talk about it, but at Gingerman, the EG actually lost brakes and I was going about 110 miles per hour and I lost complete brakes, which is the scariest thing in the world. Um, lost brakes, put the car into a spin and luckily managed to slow the car down enough to kind of go up a little bit in the banking and nothing really happened to the car. But that scenario kind of showed me that you know where this sport is extremely dangerous if i was maybe five feet over to the right i would have smashed into that safer barrier at like 80 miles per hour and i could have been seriously hurt so yep with the new bill you know i just want to be as safe as i can be and then also build the car that i want to build that has been a dream for a while i remember hearing you say that you've got in car from that race at road america have you watched it? No. I'm curious as to why. Because I know what I did wrong, and I'll probably watch it eventually. Um, but I don't know. I don't really want to. I didn't really want to watch it just to dwell on it at the time. Um, definitely not within the few weeks after. But I think I'll eventually watch it. But I know. I mean, it was it was my error. I know what I did wrong, and. I know I should have been more heads up and um, I don't know, just uh, I'll watch it eventually, I guess, but I know it's uh, I'll when I watch it, I'll be disappointed in the decision that I made. And mm. I know it's going to hurt 
you know, watching again. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a lesson that I'll need to learn. It'll be a life lesson one day. Yeah. There's something about reliving trauma. That's um, reliving it just to relive it is just not good for your soul. Um, Yeah. But one of the things I want to add is I think I got into a pretty dangerous headspace um, over the past years is I ended up driving that car kind of maybe above my head a a few times and it never really bit me in the ass. And you kind of believe you're almost invincible, which, you know, thinking, thinking about it now, you know, it was extremely dangerous to make some of these moves and then expect a good outcome. And you could not have that thought in your head that, Hey, this could be bad. And I got to a point in my racing where I kind of like suppress that thought. Um, and it's not even like racing against other people, but it's just like, Hey, I'm going to go flatten this King at road America. And I'm not lifting my foot off the throttle. I'm just going to do it. And you get, you get into that mind frame where, you know, you just push that extra bit and you don't think about the repercussions and, I think that's what ended up biting me in the ass in that wreck is I didn't have those thoughts in my head, you know, to kind of back off. So definitely one of the lessons that I learned is, you know, I'm not invincible. You know, I learned that with the brakes too. Um, the sport is dangerous. You kind of have to have, you dial it back a little bit and you kind of have to have that safety margin built in. Yeah. And that's as not all racers are men. So I'll preface that saying this, but to be a man and race oftentimes means in culture to not talk about fear, to yeah. <laughs> say that I can overcome anything by just going faster and being better. That's, that's how you win. That's how you do better. So you just drive better, go faster. But yeah. And I can't even say like in the back of your head because like you you were saying like you kind of had built up this experience bank that's like well if I take this chance it works out until it I guess doesn't yeah until it didn't and the decision ends up wrecking your car and I'm lucky that I managed to walk away but a decision just like that could have easily got me seriously hurt so it's just stuff I think about now and you know, it's, you put all these hours into this car and the last thing you want to do is, is throw it all away. So with the new build, you know, I'm definitely going to keep those thoughts in my head. Like, Hey, I spent hours working on this thing. I, I spent years building this car. I don't want to risk the same kind of risk that I've taken in the past. So kind of a, a new, you know, try to work with my thought process a little bit more, you know, on and off the track. Well, to put a positive spin on it, in, in motorcycle racing, we always say that that it's easy to take somebody who's really fast and crashes a lot and make him race better than it is to take somebody who isn't fast but is careful and make them fast. Mm. So I think you're actually in that that ideal position of somebody who is fast and realizes they just need to mature a little bit to be a very, very good racer. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, think you're in a good spot. Yeah. The The problem is um, the fast reckless driver, that's great for pro racing when you just hop in another car and continue. <laughs> but for us club racers, you know, like wrecking, wrecking your car, you know, that's, that's a huge setback financially, time-wise. And 
Yeah. And a lot of people, they wreck their cars and like, that's it. Like that's their career because they don't want to get back into it. They don't want to dump that time and money into it, but um, I'll get back out there because this is my passion. This is what I love to do. And I can't just give up. I think you're in a good headspace going forward. So uh, Appreciate that. it was, it was good to hear all of that actually. Yeah, we don't yeah. we don't have a B chassis that we can just jump into right. after a show. The good thing about the Civic is you can just find another Civic. I was fortunate where I actually got gifted the sedan um, kind of through my Instagram. Um, my friend Daryl from Florida, I, I, I didn't know the guy, but he saw the post through Hybrid Racing and he reached out to me and he was like, hey man, I got an EG shell here. Um, it's been my car for 10 years. I want you to finish it. So super grateful that I kind of had that connection to you know, Daryl. And that's where I am now. I got this EG sedan that I'm going to build up and it's going to be an awesome race car. Hopefully soon. Yeah. That's people are, can be very good. Yeah. Very generous. That's for sure. I was extremely humbled when I thought, I thought he was joking. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Like, no, let's, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. Quit. Super nice guy. Quit trolling. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I had a lot of people reach out and like kind of offer deals or like links it's just the, the great part about, you know, the community, you know, Honda's racing in general is everyone wants to kind of help out. So I think within a week or two of the crash, you know, I had so many different um, links and leads to new chassis. And at that point, um, my mind was fixed on the four-door sedan. It was either I'm going to fix the EG hatch or I'm going to get a sedan. So that's, that's where I ended up. Well, it's the whole Mr. Rogers story that, you know, wherever there's tragedy look for the helpers because accidents misfortunes and stuff allow the opportunity for generosity and kindness and grace to like really shine through and i think as you mentioned about grid life earlier um we've and i think you in particular have a pretty good group of people your dad and included who's kind of like your crew chief almost oh yeah um just around you making sure that things are going well yeah i definitely have a really good support system you know especially with my girlfriend emily my parents um just honestly going to the events with my dad every event he goes to he loves it and it's just cool kind of having that you know father son bonding moments um with my dad at this older age you know it's I don't get to see him often because he lives in New York. I live in Ohio. So he comes out to all the races. It's honestly super fun. And then obviously a ton of sponsors and supporters that help out. And so all of those guys make it happen. I can't, I can't do it all myself. I try to do as much as I can by myself, but you know, you always have to lean on somebody and and get help when you need it. I'm never afraid to ask for help. (laughs) Yeah. So here's your chance for shout outs. Uh, who, who do you want to say hi to? Yeah. So first of all, hybrid racing, um, They've been a sponsor for a few years and, and this past year, I mean, they stepped it up big time. They, we, we obviously got the car wrapped to kind of represent hybrid racing and, and the brand and got a lot of parts on the car that are hybrid racing, basically everything they make from the case, from the case swaps, shifters, fuel rails, all that. But not only that, the main guys, some of the main guys, they came out to basically all the events to help out, you know, be part of the crew and, and kind of document most of the series. So. Um, if you head over to hybrid racing's YouTube channel, you can actually follow most of my season this, this past year. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, I'll get to watch those in the future to see 
our struggles, our triumphs and all that. So yep. huge shout out to hybrid racing. Those guys are awesome. They're definitely going to be on board with the new build. They're super pumped about the four door. So that's cool. But got a bunch of other people, um, iron OEM, they supplied all the OEM Honda Acura parts for the car heel to automotive. They've been a big part sponsor. Um, fortune auto. I ran fortune autos for the first season this year and they were absolutely fantastic. Carbotech brakes, um, fast brakes, you know, their big brake kit on there. Um, who else we got? <laughs> Haltech. Haltech's another big one. Um, and they actually came in clutch big time for the last event. Um, I actually got the car retuned by one of their guys in Kentucky, um, Rick. And we actually had issues most of the weekend with TPMS, I think one of my harnesses. So they were able to kind of remote in and fix all that stuff. And um, those guys are always at the event. So big shout out to Haltech. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, iBox, iBox on there, Motul, Oils. Got a few more, but those are the main heavy hitters. So if I if I didn't shout you out, my apologies because <laughs> I'm I'm rambling now. No. Oh, Koenig, Koenig, all the wheels. Those guys are good. There you go. But yeah, I think I think that's everybody. Passport. <laughs> there's there, there's always more. Yeah, there's always more. I mean, I've I've been very fortunate with the support I've got, and uh, yeah, just wanted to say thanks to all those guys with the parts and. Got a lot of people that want to be on board with the new build as well. So I appreciate you guys helping to make that happen. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking time out of your uh, your build schedule. Uh, thanks, guys. To, to talk with us and hang out for a little bit. So for the three of us, I'm Scott. I'm Seth. And I'm Eric. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>